The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good morning, and thank you for joining host Cheryl Esposito for an intriguing hour of Leading Conversations. Each week, Cheryl brings together big thinkers to the Voice America Business Channel. Now here's your host, Cheryl Esposito. Well, good morning, everyone, and welcome to Leading Conversations. This is Cheryl Esposito. Today we have a very special guest, Stacy Haynes. Stacy is a founder of an organization called Generation 5, a social justice organization whose mission it is to end the sexual abuse of children within five generations. She's the author of The Survivor's Guide to Sex, How to Have an Empowered Sex Life After Childhood Sexual Abuse, and she has created many, many, many opportunities for individuals to heal their lives and live proud and productive lives on the planet. Cece, welcome to the show. Thank you, Cheryl. Thanks for having me. It's great to have you here. Where are you today? I am in Oakland, California. Ah, now, yeah. were you were you were you down on the square? Were you uh, involved in the Occupy Oakland? Uh, I was in touch with folks involved, but I uh, was have been out traveling. I was in Connecticut for the storm, and then I was in Colorado. So I'm just getting home from. Oh boy! Um, yeah, boy. so mostly tracking it online. Yeah, it's been quite an interesting time lately. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, very exciting. I, I feel like the one of the major opportunities inside the Occupy movement is to really change the narrative that we've been living inside of and an opportunity to change the framework mm-hmm. of how we're both looking at some of our, our big problems that we're all facing as well as uh, an orient, you know, different orientation towards solutions. I'm, I, I feel very uh, glad that that stir is happening. Mm-hmm. Well, it does seem that change is afoot. It does seem that there is... Um, some level of discontent that is not easily answered by um, either a single change or a some sort of action that will pacify people. It seems more organic. Yes, um, uh, I, I, I think organic and also. Um, Vast, you know, mm-hmm. one of the ways that we really look at change, um, both inside of the somatic discourse uh, that I work in and inside of Generation 5, is how do we actually start to connect change at the individual level, um, really look uh, at families, communities, institutions, social norms. You know, we're all living inside of those layers, um, but oftentimes we'll kind of specialize in looking at change or transformation in, in just one of those. And part of the trend that I feel very excited about in 
progressive social movement work um, is that this intersection of personal transformation and systemic transformation, there's a very, very strong bridge being built between the two of those. Mm-hmm. And I think, of course, as you and uh, you, many of your listeners uh, know, as we do a deep kind of change personally, our view on leadership or how we lead, how we build relationships, and even what solutions we might come up with really changes. And then for those of us who really are looking at social change and systemic change, uh, including that level of kind of grand-scale thinking, but grounded also in a place of having done deep personal work, makes the strategies and the orientations toward how to do do systemic systemic change, um, it, it alters them, it informs them. So, Susie, you've been in the field of transformation for many, many years, and mm. you uh, founded, you're one of the founders of Generation 5. Mm-hmm. Tell the listeners a little bit about the genesis of that. Yes, happy to. You know, I, I uh, come from a place, and of course I didn't have these words as a kid, but I just have a long-standing interest in people and how people change, and then... From when I was young, I just really hated things being unfair. Mm. So that, of course, grew into a, a real interest in social change work and in, um, you know, equality and, and, and justice. Mm. Um, and uh, when I hit college um, is when I started dealing with my own history of sexual abuse. Um, I was sexually abused within my family and then also within our, our community. And I uh, started dealing with that first in college, and what I was stunned about is there were just no support services. And it turns out what I had to do is I actually had to do outreach and do activism to even get enough services started so that I could get services. And so at the very beginning, healing and activism were very integrated for me just out of sheer need. Um, I was also uh, really at that time getting much more uh, educated around social movements and a much broader perspective of history. And what I realized that was very influential in my own personal healing process is I realized that, of course, many, many, many people before me had worked for um, social change, for liberation, for uh, equality. And I remember really like the days that I just didn't have the courage to keep facing what I was trying to face about my own history and my own healing, Mm. the days that I couldn't do it for me, I would go, you know what? People did it for me last generation, so I'm going to do it for the next generation. Mm. And it would really give me strength to keep dealing with what was just a a very, very difficult healing process. So there's a way where that that intersection was very lived for me, and I think that really infused then my my work and the orientation of Generation 5. The... um, Work initially started uh, here in the Bay Area in San Francisco, um, really bringing survivors, adult survivors of child sexual abuse together, not to heal, but to really take action and see how we could change our communities and prevent child sexual abuse. And uh, after a handful of years of that, we really saw that what we would need is a much broader strategy and really to become a, the next phase of a movement, um, but a movement with different solutions. And I think this is one of the opportunities of such a difficult issue is that if we react 
which is understandable, but if we react to child sexual abuse in the kind of typical ways that one might expect, like punitive and angry and right. denial, of course, which happens, but it, if we react to child sexual abuse, we actually won't transform the very things that allow it to continue. And that's one of the pieces that I think has been just very inspiring for me in the hundreds of survivors who've been a part of really generating a different solution um, is that it's, it's looking beyond the reaction to uh, communities and families where this wouldn't happen. Like, we have to take our vision beyond, beyond our reaction. Well, you know, I can imagine that um, there's a lot of controversy around this approach and that people who are um, close to situations of abuse may have a problem saying, you know, the abuser, I don't want to help them. I want them to go away. I want them to be punished. I want them to be hurt the way I was hurt. And, um, I mean, how do you get someone who has experienced abuse to feel some level of compassion for this process? Well, I just think it's a great question. Um, and the answer might be surprising to you, but uh, so this approach that we developed is called transformative justice, uh-huh. and uh, it really holds as priorities that survivors, whether they're children or adults, of course, get um, uh, safety and a sense of agency and healing, right, that empowerment of healing, that bystanders, so those are people in the families and communities, that they also get educated and start to take an active role in prevention, so they get involved, and then that offenders of child sexual abuse are both held accountable, but are also humanized and really held as a person who can transform uh, rather than a monster, like a lot of the words that we use around this, like sexual predator, I mean, they're just, they're completely dehumanizing, and what's sad is, you know, the vast amount of child sexual abuse happens in our, our families and our intimate networks. It's, it's, it isn't stranger molest. It's our uncles, fathers, mothers, yeah. brother-in-laws. Like, that's where it's happening. They're human right. beings who we actually know and probably have some level of relationship with. So, sure. But to your question, it's actually been the opposite. The adult survivors, right, because... Um, you know, it's adults coming together to build the strategy. Right, right. The adult survivors of child sexual abuse are literally the ones who are calling for a much more transformative response. And I think it's because of two reasons. One, many of them who are involved have done a lot of healing. And two, they are the very people who know the complexity of the relationship. So for many people, it's like, wow, I have been related to this person my whole life. I know the complexity of who they are, and they've harmed me worse than anyone has ever harmed me. But you're forced to know their humanity because you've been in a relationship with them for so long. And really, it is the thing, one of the key inspirations behind starting Generation 5 was a series of focus groups that we held. Um, And a handful of the focus groups were just with adult survivors of child sexual abuse. And one of the questions we asked is if we were going to really end it within 100 years, what would we have to do? What would have to change? And every single group of adult survivors said 
we need to hold the offender's humanity and room for them to change while making sure they're not doing harm anymore. They need to become whole human beings again. And I went, wow, it's time. It's time. If this is a vision coming out of survivors, it's time. Usually it's people farther away from the issue who want to be the most punishing and the most punitive. That makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. You know, all kinds of questions come up for me as I'm hearing this, and I'm. it's making me think that um, it's like we're coming full circle around we will take care of our own. So we are all human beings. We are all accountable to each other. And so in order to really live that, we have to face, all parts of ourselves, and we have to speak truth to one another, and we have to say, okay, as you're describing it, you did this, and let's get clearer. Let's let's clear the energy between us. Let's transform this experience into something powerful. Yep. I, I think it is. I mean, in some ways, I think it's the the best of human beings, you know, um, when something is just profoundly violating uh, as, as child sexual abuse um, has happened. And um, I know this will air later, but, you know, this week it's been all over the news with Penn State. Oh, yeah, yeah. And, um, you know, those adult survivors, those boys, it would have been boys and now they're men coming forward. And, and one man in particular that I heard, he said, you know, people have to understand that child sexual abuse is a murder of the soul. Um, It's a very intimate violation. But the best of humans is that we can actually learn how to face that level of violation. And, And again, we want accountability. And to get big enough to go, wow, accountability and transformation are possible. And I think that takes, like, a, a very big human capacity. But it's in us. It's in us. I mean, one, one thing that's exciting that we kind of look to, and, of course, this is a very different situation, but, you know, really South Africa is the only place that at the level of the nation state they faced the atrocities of apartheid and said, we are going to do a truth and reconciliation process. And they, I mean, murder, rape, you know, the whole thing happened within the apartheid regime. But South Africa as a whole said, we actually have to start from a place of healing if we have any hope of not repeating history. And, you know, it's completely imperfect. There are plenty of critiques of the truth and reconciliation sure, process. Sure, sure, yeah. South Africa is a complicated country like any other, but it's incredibly impressive that a country tried it at the level of nation states. Mm-hmm. And what we're really saying is we want to build the capacity within communities to do it at the level of, of community. Mm-hmm. Um, because for child sexual abuse, that's what's happening. That's really where it's happening. And um, uh, I, I just want to sh- uh, share one more thing. We uh, had a big uh, launching event a couple of weeks ago, and we were talking about what are the skills needed or the capacity needed to actually practice transformative justice. And we really named three areas. First of all, it takes deep emotional capacity. 
mm-hmm. that we can feel our healthy reactions of wanting to like retaliate and choose instead to be transformative in our response. Uh, so emotional capacity. The second one was really relational capacity. Because when something traumatic like this happens, usually people want to cut off relationship. Right. Again, which is totally understandable, but there is a lot of research on sexual offenders and the thing that decreases them doing it again, that decreases recidivism, is that people stay in positive, accountable relationship with them. It's relationship that's one of the key factors that helps to prevent again. And then the third skill set is really a a political understanding, a social understanding of many of the root causes of this behavior. It's it's not an individual bad apple. You know, if it, it were a bad apple and it's just this person, then the rates of child sexual abuse would be much, much lower. It's really a social issue, and um, its numbers, actually, if you look at the Center for Disease Control, the numbers around child sexual abuse categorize as an epidemic. That is so, yeah, it's, you know, even the CDC that probably has, uh, you know, its, it's, it's rates are going to be fairly uh, conservative, sure. are really looking at uh, about one in five girls and one in nine boys get sexually abused before their 18th birthday. So we're going, oh, we have a social problem here. Definitely. Like what practices are we learning that result in so many people doing this? And so that's the third skill set is really a social and a political skill set and analysis to, to, to more deeply understand the root causes. Well, you know, this whole question of why does this keep happening is a big one. And I want to talk more about that when we come right back after this break. Find out which guests are being featured this week. Read our network press releases and read the blog posts from your favorite hosts. Go to iradioblog.com today. Powered by the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Leadership is not static. It evolves as you do. At Alexa Consulting, we work with CEOs, senior leaders, and leaders in transition who want to make a difference. Leaders who believe that good business is good for people, good for the world, and knows that conscious actions can have global impact. Are you ready to take your leadership to the next level? If you are, then visit our website at www.alexaconsulting.com. That's www.alexaconsulting.com. Alexa Consulting, developing leaders worldwide. Up-to-date business and financial news. Call now and get the financial information you need. 866-472-5790. 866-472-5790. The experts are here. Voice America Business Network. We appreciate you joining our leading conversations today. If you would like to participate in today's conversation, please call us now at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. Now back to your host, Cheryl. 
Well, welcome back to Leading Conversations. This is Cheryl Esposito with our guest, Stacey Haynes, today, who's founder of Generation 5 and author of The Survivor's Guide to Sex, How to Have an Empowered Sex Life After Childhood Sexual Abuse. So, Stacey, let's talk about the why. You said, you know, we have to understand the social-political understanding of why child sexual abuse continues to occur. So Mm -hmm. tell us more about that. Okay, good. Um, So there are a series of complex social factors, um, but I'm I'm going to try to try to break it down. Um, Anything that we see happening across, uh, like a widespread sector of society, we have to then start asking questions about social norms and also about how our institutions work because repeated behavior at that level tends to be supported by social norms. Now, of course, everyone would agree that child sexual abuse is awful. I'm including most offenders will say that, but the behavior rates, right, are so high. Very high. Yeah, very high. So one of the root causes is that we still currently, and I'm talking about the U.S., but, of course, we can see this across other cultures, too, but we still live in a social structure that's based on domination. And, you know, while there have been many, many movements for equality in the U.S., and we're definitely in a different place now than we were, say, 60 years ago during the Civil Rights Movement, we still basically inherit a belief system of domination that things are structured hierarchically and that some people have more worth and others have less worth. Mm. And we also inherit a social view that we have dominion over the earth. Right. Right. So this is a part of our environmental issues, too, is we don't see ourselves as interdependent with the planet. We see the planet as a place of resource for us. Right. So if we look at children... It's very recent in our social history that children are even seen as having rights. So, of course, child labor laws were getting put into place at the turn of the century, but children, it's much more subtle now, but they're, they're definitely seen as owned by their family. Mm. Um, now, again, quite a radical change in the last 40 years, but uh, the U.S. is one of the only uh, Western nations that hasn't signed on to the international right of rights for children. Now, that doesn't mean that nations that have don't have child sexual abuse, but I'm just saying there's something in our institutions and our social norms that still... uh, don't hold children as property still, but let, definitely they have they have fewer rights. Well, so, let, let me interrupt you there. Uh, let, let's please, yeah. talk a minute about the most current headline that's going on regarding Penn State um, yeah. and the, I will call him an alleged abuser, Jerry Sandusky, mm-hmm. former assistant yeah. coach. Um, and, of course, Joe Paterno is getting all the, all the press, but he's getting the press because he did not take more action, and he's a very loved being, you know, in the football world. And and I'm wondering about this whole culture of denial. You know, I mean, it's, it's why, so, okay, I understand what you're saying about we, we have these social structures based on domination, okay, mm-hmm. and yet we don't think it's okay, most people don't think it's okay for an adult to rape a child. 
This was seen, it was reported, it was reported again, and yet what is it, help me understand, what is it that yeah. would keep action from being taken? I mean, I have yeah. to believe that every single one of those people who heard about this was stunned and said, oh my God, this is horrible, mm-hmm. and yeah. then did nothing. Exactly. So this is the interface between, again, we have to go, um, why did the coach or keeping it quiet or keeping the identity of the football team intact, why was all that more important than those children? Right. Right. So partly we have to go, well, there's the domination piece. Who's more important? Who's expendable? But the other piece you bring up that's so important about denial is um, uh, we definitely live inside a culture of denial. Um, oftentimes the information that we're getting has nothing to do with kind of a, uh, the, the grounded truth of reality. Um, but what I want to throw in here to really normalize it is that denial is a completely normal response to trauma. And this is one of the things that we've really seen at Gen 5 is that the normal self-protective responses to trauma, whether it's happening to you or witnessing it, are denial, minimization, um, like a, a, a violent counterattack, like vigilantism, right? right? Um, and blaming the victim. Those are completely normal responses inside of our social structure, but also inside of our psychobiologies, right? Like fight, flight, freeze, dissociate. Those are the ways that our psychobiologies respond to trauma. And then you just scale that up and go, oh, well, a fight response becomes vigilantism and just be highly punitive, especially a stranger molest. Not a vehicle, not a beloved coach, right? right? The person has to be pretty far away. Yeah. a flee response is a lot about denial, dissociation. That's a lot about like denying and minimizing and then moving away from it. I'm not going to deal with it. So the problem is it's like we stay in those survival responses and don't actually come back to a set of values and then a set of actions that reflect what we really care about. It's like we stay in trauma response as an entire culture and don't face and then act on our, our core values, which is we know this is wrong and it's horrible and we're so sorry for those children. Yeah. So I think all of that is helps to both normalize and understand our response, but there's nothing in the culture that sets us right. Mm-hmm. The culture actually just keeps promoting the denial. Yeah. Right, right, right. That makes sense. Very sad. Yeah. Makes sense. So, yeah. you know, the, um, the whole concept of how this trauma, you know, whether it's sexual abuse or any other type of trauma that a person experiences, how how we hold it in our body. You know, you work with the practice of somatics. You've used it very successfully. I practice it myself. I know it works really well with clients. And so tell us about somatics and the whole concept of trauma imprinting in the body. Mm-hmm. Yeah, good. Um, <clears throat> Uh, so, again, since we're having a social conversation, I'll start there. But um, mostly through our Western education, we've been uh, given an interpretation of uh, the body kind of as an object that carries our mind around. 
right? Like the most important thing is our thinking and the body just that thing you want to make sure you get fixed whenever it gets broken. Right. And um, what trauma teaches us, and uh, neuroscience is a good 20 years in right now to proving this through the scientific method, although it's been practiced much longer than neuroscience is validating it, is that really we are... Um, psychobiologies or we are organisms that have uh, intelligence in many different ways. So our thinking is one intelligence. Of course, our feeling is another intelligence and our instinct is yet another intelligence. And in some ways, it's great that our survival doesn't depend on our conscious mind because we, we, we just wouldn't make it very far. Right, <laughs> And uh, just as an example, if you imagine, you know, that you're walking down the street and you trip, if you actually had to think through, it's like I should reach my hand out and catch myself on the sidewalk, uh-huh. just literally we'd all have broken noses. We just can't think that fast, <laughs> right? Like what happens is our instinct takes over and our instinct is a complete cooperation between our muscular system, our endocrine system, our skeletal system, our nervous system, right? The brain is a part of our nervous system. Um, That whole capacity operates together and we catch ourselves and then we stand up and we're probably a little bit embarrassed. We have a lot of energy running through us from the adrenaline and then eventually we walk on, we calm back down and, you know, hopefully we're not too embarrassed over time, right? Right, right. So when we... That is literally how we live and survive is this interactive cooperative system and our thinking is just part of it, yeah. So when we have experiences that are really threatening, they either threaten our safety or they threaten our sense of connection or belonging, and of course child sexual abuse threatens both of those in a very profound way, a whole system kicks in to help us survive that. Um, you know, it's like falling off a cliff instead of falling down on the sidewalk, right? Mm-hmm. And that system is uh, complex, complex, and it is our whole uh, uh, psychobiology that does that. So, so some of the things that happen uh, is that the, the centers of the brain that are most activated during trauma mm-hmm. are the, uh, I don't need to get too scientific on this, but basically the survival centers of the brain and uh, the oldest part of the brain, which is in the back, like the reptilian brain. Right. And it kicks off a whole set of how am I going to survive this violation. And very normal responses, again, are to dissociate, kind of leave the situation without physically leaving it, um, to the impulse to run, to run away from harm, uh, the impulse to fight, fight back, um, and the impulse to freeze. And those, all those impulses are survival impulses that cannot be controlled by the conscious mind. Um, the conscious mind during trauma, so the neocortex, the more recently evolved part of, of our brains, basically shuts down during highly traumatic situations. So literally the easiest way in to healing trauma is through the body, which accesses the parts of the brain that are most activated during trauma. So when we sit down and try to talk about our trauma and make meaning of our trauma, which is very important, often what people are left with is an understanding of what happened to them and no change in their symptoms. Right. Right because we're using the wrong tool for the job. So one of the 
just profound things about somatics or anything that centers the whole psychobiology as the place to transform is we access where the memories are stored in the muscles. We access the chemistry systems that are causing a lot of hypervigilance and ongoing anxiety. We access the parts of the brain that were most activated during that trauma, and then we access it so that we can transform it. Um, it's almost like a survival response never got to fully complete itself, and you're helping that survival response complete 20 years later, 30 years later, 40 years later, but it's really possible. Um, it's possible to do that. Hmm. It, it makes me think about um, PTSD when soldiers come back from war. You know, we've got a whole yeah. lot of that going on with Afghanistan and Iraq, et cetera, and the rate of um, healing for the soldiers is pathetically low. It is ridiculous. It's worse, I think, than the Vietnam War was. And it sounds to me like this would be very useful. Yeah. It's, I mean... One of the things that has kept me in somatics these last 16 years is how profoundly well it works, mm. and particularly how profoundly well it works with trauma. Right. It works with more than trauma because we're all shaped by our histories, whether they're traumatic sure. or not. Okay. We carry our adaptations to life with us, and sometimes our life outgrows them, and we keep reacting the same way. And somatics, again, helps transform that through the psychobiology uh, whereas thinking alone can't can't always change that. Um, right. But you know um, the the rates of soldiers coming back from Iraq and Afghanistan getting help is uh, ranging at about thirty five percent, which means that sixty five percent aren't getting help. Um, it is luckily actually higher than post Vietnam. And trauma is a much more understood concept than Mm -hmm. post-Vietnam. But still, that's a very low rate when you think about these are people who've witnessed incredible violence and, and of course, done violence because that's what they're asked to do. And seen this horrors. And then they come home and they're supposed to build families and be contributing members to society. And a lot of them are 19 and 22-year-olds heading over there. So... um, while we are better at understanding and working with post-traumatic stress disorder, the understanding of the role of the psychobiology is still very, very, very new. Like 20 years from now, my speculation is it will be fully integrated into veteran affairs around PTSD and trauma, mm. but we're not there. It's very seen as very innovative, even though it's, it's well-proven. Right. So, yes, it would be helpful. And in some cases, I mean... For both survivors of child sexual abuse who are maybe hearing this show as well as vets or anyone who, 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 who's had trauma, there are a lot of somatic methodologies available now, and um, it, uh, they're just very, very effective. So I want to encourage folks to, you know, head online. There's about five major somatic schools that people can access. Many of them have a list of practitioners uh, who are trained in their work. Mm-hmm. And, of course, find someone or a group to work with that works for you. Um, I always tell people when they're seeking healing, even from severe trauma and PTSD, if you don't find significant 
palpable changes happening within six months, get a new practitioner. Yeah. yeah. It's not you. Just get a new practitioner. Um, even really heavy-duty child sexual abuse, if you have three, about three years of very effective somatic healing work, you'll just be stunned at the difference in your life and how much you're not caring anymore from your history. Um, you know, that healing is really possible. What a relief from so many people. <laughs> so we're going to talk more about this and, and talk more about the, the larger perspective of transformative justice that you really are all about when we come right back. Be sure to friend us on Facebook. You can do it right now. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for us at keyword Voice America. Leadership is not static. It evolves as you do. At Alexa Consulting, we work with CEOs, senior leaders, and leaders in transition who want to make a difference. Leaders who believe that good business is good for people, good for the world, and knows that conscious actions can have global impact. Are you ready to take your leadership to the next level? If you are, then visit our website at www.alexaconsulting.com. That's www.alexasaconsulting.com. Alexa Consulting, developing leaders worldwide. We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now, toll free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. We appreciate you joining our leading conversations today. If you would like to participate in today's conversation, please call us now at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. Now back to your host, Cheryl. And welcome back to Leading Conversations. This is Cheryl Esposito. Our guest today is Stacey Haynes, founder of Generation 5. So let's talk about transformative justice. You know, this term has been thrown around a lot in the last few years, and there are a lot of different interpretations about what that really means. So, from your perspective, sum it up for us, Dave. What is transformative justice? Excellent. What a good question. Um, So, transformative justice is a way to respond to um, experiences of hurt or violence right, in one's family or community, and hopefully we can take it bigger than that, but respond to it in a way that actually is transformative to both the people involved and also to the cultural and social norms that let it happen in the first place. Mm. So if I, you know, put some detail to that, um, uh, well, I'm just going to tell you about a situation and then it gets clear. So there was a uh, youth minister who was sexually abusing, uh, you know, kids in the, in the, in the youth ministry. Um, this came forward, and, you know, as we all know, uh, churches often don't mm-hmm. actually go to the law. They try to handle it internally, yeah. and uh, which is its own conversation. <laughs> right. Uh, what happened inside of that is when the, ch- the youth came forward that this was happening, what it revealed is it had been happening for many years, and other 
people who had been youth who are now adults came forward. Inside of this whole thing, what that community really wanted was accountability, but based on kind of the values inside their church, they wanted healing for the past and the current uh, uh, youth. Um, they also wanted to take a really deep look at the ethic and the practice inside of their church as to how this could happen there and really move the person who'd done it, of course, to accountability and to healing and to, and to transformation. So there's a process that happened um, uh, holding those pieces. Um, but what was really to kind of highlight the second part, which I, I think is harder to think about, it was amazing the, the depth of reflection about the ethics inside of their church. And what they really saw is like, well, we actually espouse certain ethics, but a lot of what we're actually teaching is a negation of children, a negation of women, a certain image of God, and, you know, the kind of immediately forgive and forget. We'll just forgive. And inside of that, it doesn't allow for a certain truth-telling, a truth-telling of what's happening. And they did a very deep look at what other violations could be happening inside of their community, really built an orientation toward practicing truth-telling and accountability. And they tried to really look at the social norms within their community that allowed this to happen. So it's that double duty, like responding in a transformative way to the incidents and then looking to the broader ethics or systems or institutional practices that um, have been allowing it to continue and changing those. Hmm. You know, that takes a lot of courage. Yes, it does. It takes a lot of capacity. I sometimes laugh and I go, oh, my God, how did I, how did I get involved in child sexual abuse? And, of course, I inherited it through my family. Yeah, but right. sometimes I go, wow, it takes a lot of commitment and courage and capacity. And, you know, what's amazing is it also it just really brings out the best in people, too, um, because it calls for folks to step up. Right, right, right. Well, you know, I mean, as I think about, um, you know, just look at what's going on in our society in terms of um, the number of people in prisons and, you know, crime rates and recidivism and people who can't seem to get 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 their life to a point where they're they're feeling good about themselves, where they're productive, where they they can't stay away from criminal behavior, etc. And I don't know any of the statistics around that. I know the anecdotal um, story around that is, you know, a lot of those people have actually been abused as kids, whether it was sexual abuse or some other form of physical abuse or mental emotional abuse. And, you know, it kind of gets back to this whole concept of domination and how we as human beings have to make someone else feel less than in order Mm -hmm. to make ourselves feel okay. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I mean, and these these patterns and these continual patterns and, and the... I know that not every person who's abused becomes an abuser. But very often, those who do abuse have been abused. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
So these, I mean, these are all very important things that you're bringing up. Um, and let me just talk a little bit about how transformative justice would look at this. Um, just first of all, the stats on sexual offenders or people who sexually abuse kids is that um, only a third of them were sexually abused themselves. Really? Now, it's pretty, yeah, but almost all of them were either neglected or physically abused. Okay. And neglect is a huge part of it. You know, right. there's these foundational needs that we have um, as humans, and this kind of re- reverts back to kind of um, a somatic understanding, but we fundamentally, of course, need safety. Like, we move yeah. towards survival. We also fundamentally need love and connection because we're social animals. And we also need dignity. And you can kind of think, like, these are the things that humans go to war for. Um, people also go to war for greed. But right. I'm not going to count that as a fundamental need. Right. Maybe that's just a <laughs> fundamental problem. But, um, but so if you put together neglect, physical abuse, and then sexual abuse, most offenders that we've been able to, like, talk to and get these stats from have that. But what we also need to look at is... Girls are sexually abused more often than boys. Why are the vast majority of sexual abusers male? Not all of them. About, you know, 13 to 17% of sexual abusers are female. Um, But this brings us back to why we need to look politically and look at a broader system. Right. Because two things. If we just say generally, of course, men are in the dominant role compared to women. Like, sure. that's still true in the U.S., right? Sure. They're yeah. taught a, a frame of domination, and women are taught a frame of right. not as much. Right. And uh, then the other piece, of course, if we look at this emotional competency, if we look at male gender training, in general, men are not encouraged to have a normal, healthy human range of emotions. Often, gender training trains men to express most of their emotions either sexually or through anger. And so we have to go to that social norms level and go, what's happening that these rates are so different? And we're not going to just chalk it up to like, well, that's just men. We're not going to do that. Men, men aren't inherently violent. Culture brings things out in us. And so what is our culture bringing out? Yeah. Mm-hmm. The second piece about prisons, and again, looking through this transformative justice lens, is a lot of our allies are people doing... Uh, prison reform work and even prison abolition work and really looking at how much the prison system is not working and also that we're running a for-profit prison system Mm. which is just kind of stunning if we think about it. Right, right. It's like, oh my God, how how can we do that? And, you know, then naturally we also need to look at who's in prison and there are a much, much higher percentage of people in col- people of color in prison and a much higher percentage of poor and working class people in prison. And we're not going to say, well, they're just, you know, that's inherent. More, we're looking again at systems of domination and who's mostly in prison are the folks on the bottom mm-hmm. who aren't getting as much access, who aren't getting as much education, who actually aren't getting as much nourishment. And we go, wow, we're just promoting, keep producing this cycle. And to see, again, the themes, the population themes, instead of assuming it's just these individuals. Now, individuals are accountable for their own behavior, but when we see broad themes, we, again, have to turn around and go, wow, something's not working about the system itself. 
Right. So, more need for transformation is what it brings us back to, is we don't want to just react, we want to transform, and transform means looking forward, right? I mean, all of us know this in our kind of planning, it's like look forward to what you want, and then from there look back and go, how can we get there? So, if what we want is, of course, no child sexual abuse, what we want is more equity, what we want is vitality and safety in our community, what we want is room for children to have childhoods, then we get to go, okay, how do we build communities and how do we, of course, build a society that promotes that? And, of course, we have some values that do promote that and we have a bunch of values and institutions that don't, um, which, you know, I, I, I... I want to leave people with hope. (laughs) One of the reasons we really developed a five-generation vision, Um, we actually have benchmarks for each generation, like what needs to change by the end of this generation so the next one is prepared to do the next set of change. Um, But why we have a 125-year vision is we know that it's deep personal transformation and societal transformation that will get us to a place where Child sexual abuse isn't what, it it doesn't happen, you know, that really safety and connection and vitality is what happens uh, within our, within our families and communities. So, you know, five generations sounds like a really long time, (laughs) and, um, and yet I think if we were actually able to understand this whole concept of how long-lasting an effect a simple action is, if we would just begin to embody that knowing, Mm -hmm. you know, maybe we could, maybe it would affect an individual's perspective on, whether they scream at a child or yeah. you know, whether they do something more horrific. I mean, yeah. we, we don't hold that, you know, as a society. Yeah. We, whether we're here in the U.S. or around the world, especially these days, it's, the, the sound bite is, you know, all pervasive. And everything is immediate, and it's only about now, and... Yeah. It's like this whole sense of continuity has disappeared. Yeah. I, you know, I I have a lot of compassion for us in general, (laughs) the broader us. Good thing. (laughs) Because, you know, um, we're really taught a lot of individualism when it's actually not how we work biologically at all. We're really collective. That's, that's our orientation. That's mm. like uh, as social animals, we're, we, we orient our collectives. Right. And then also so much, especially as capitalism and global capitalism has increased, we're really seen as consumers instead of as human beings. Right. And, you know, both of those things really, we learn to objectify ourselves and objectify other people. Like, I'm seeing you as a consumer and says, no, you're a human being with a story and a biology and cares and and loves. And I want to be connected to you, right? And that's a natural impulse. It's not shameful at all. We want to be connected. That's that's part of our cooperative nature. And I think in many ways, you know, if we're going to, you know, whether it's ending child sexual abuse or making it through the 
uh, impending environmental disaster mm-hmm. <laughs> that we're all facing together. Right. Right. I feel like there is this deep, um, in some ways I might call it remembering, that needs to happen mm-hmm. about our interdependence with each other and our interdependence with the planet. I mean, if, if we don't remember our interdependence with the planet, we're the ones who are going to die, not the planet. Right. The planet can go on without us. Absolutely true. (laughs) (laughs) And so I look at that and I go, well, that interdependence isn't a concept. It's actually a felt knowing. And we, the, the process of, you know, somatics does this so well, which is why I really continue in it, is dropping into the felt sense of the psychobiology, what I see over and over again is that people return to a sense of empathy, Mm. to permission that cooperation and connection is what we want. Like, it's not bad, it's not silly, it's not weak, it's just real. And that we start actually moving from a place of empathy and making choices from empathy, and we make really different choices from there. Different choices from there than rather objectifying each other. But that's a real lived transformation in ourselves. And it's a real lived transformation in, you know, again, socially, what are the norms that we're promoting? And individualism right. and consumerism, I think we all know, won't get us there. Mm-hmm. Um, but how deeply they, they have us learn to objectify ourselves and each other, I think, is perhaps an unintended outcome, but one we're still struggling with. Well, it sounds like uh, our whole society could do some healing simply <laughs> the concept of um, moving from individualism into back into remembering the collectivism. Yeah. And that would be a great place to start. Stacey, yeah. we're at the end of the show already, and I know people are going to want to know more, so how can they do that? Great. Well, they can check us out online. I'm going to give you two websites. The first one is generation5.org, and five is spelled out F-I-V-E. Generation5.org, you can find our five-generation vision on there and our plan, and, you know, give us your feedback. Um, so you can find more information there. And then more about using somatics for both personal and social transformation, you can look at generative somatics. Dot org. So generative somatics.org um, to follow up on that. And thank you so much for having me. It's been a great conversation with you. It's been great to have you here today, Stacy. And the work you're doing is magnificent. And thank you so much for being in this world. And remember, everyone, to think big because the world could be a better place because of a conversation that matters. This is Cheryl Esposito. Thank you for spending this hour with Cheryl Esposito and Leading Conversations. You can listen live every Friday at 10 a.m. Pacific Standard Time on the Voice America Business Channel. If you have a question or comment for Cheryl, please email her at leadingconversations at alexaconsulting.com. That's L-E-A-D-I-N-G-C-O-N-V-E-R-S-A-T-I-O-N-S at A-L-E-X-S-A-C-O-N-S-U-L-T-I-N-G.com. See you next week.
Leadership is not static. It evolves as you do. At Alexa Consulting, we work with CEOs, senior leaders, and leaders in transition who want to make a difference. Leaders who believe that good business is good for people, good for the world, and knows that conscious actions can have global impact. Are you ready to take your leadership to the next level? If you are, then visit our website at www.alexaconsulting.com. That's www.alexasaconsulting.com. Alexa Consulting, developing leaders worldwide. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.